Thank you. Let's stand open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Speaking of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe one of the most important moments in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet one of those moments rarely preached about, I don't know if over the course of my lifetime, 51 years being at church, I've ever heard a message in person on the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 9 verse 1, He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of you, some of them that stand here, which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and leadeth them apart into a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and there were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. There was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Verse 1 begins by telling us a prophecy that came out of the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, he said that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now the disciples were convinced that this coming of Christ would establish an earthly kingdom. They didn't realize it would be in two parts. But this prophecy would be fulfilled just seven days Later, after six days, the Bible tells us in Luke, around eight days, on the seventh day, Christ takes him up to a mountain. Now, here's what you don't ever want to do. Uh, if Christ doesn't give specifics in this case, he doesn't give us a specific mountain that is being spoken about. There are two places being debated about which one would be considered the Mount of Transfiguration. I lean towards Mount Hermon, but on the site of Mount Tabor, the Catholics have built three tabernacles, just as Peter asked Christ to do, and he told them not to build those tabernacles, the Catholic Church decided. So that would make me lean a different direction automatically. <laughs> but Mount Hermon is a beautiful mountain, just 35 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, often snow-covered. And today, if someone wanted to go to the top of that mountain, they can go up by a ski lift because there's a ski resort now at the top of that mountain. But there was no ski lift to take these men to the top of the mountain. Now, we were just in Ecuador and 9,000, 10,000, we reached 11,000 feet above sea level. How many of you have been at those heights and realized the lack of oxygen? But in each case, I'm glad that we drove up those mountains and did not walk them. So what was considered a great privilege by these three, maybe if you're not a big hiker, if you're overweight like I am, it wouldn't be such a privilege to be pulled apart and to climb this mountain. But Christ, here's what he did in his earthly ministry. He was 100% God, 100% man. He could have immediately spoken the word of men at the top of this mountain, but he would do everything as a man. They had watched him 
now for over three years in his ministry, become tired and weary, and they would walk together to the top of this mountain. The Bible says Peter, James, and John, this was part of the inner circle. Now, uh, here's, here's what people say in life. I, I don't think some would say you should have best friends. I don't think you should invest more time in some people than others. Well, that's unbiblical in its philosophy. Because Christ had hundreds of disciples, the 12 that traveled with him, and then three of those 12 that he specifically spent time with. And I don't know why. I, I have my opinions but we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us expressly why he chose Peter, James, and John. But here's what you do see over in Scripture, a pattern of specific dedication and commitment from these three. You see John especially close, called the beloved, leaning on Christ's breast. You see Peter uh, in John 6 where many of the disciples uh, left Christ with that extremely difficult teaching uh, there of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We know the symbolism. We know the meaning of that. They struggled with the meaning of that. But when many of them left, what did Peter do? He asked Christ, when, when Christ said, are you also going to go away? And he said, to whom should we go? They, you just see a different level of commitment in a willingness. It, it, later in this chapter, you see uh, James willing to call down asking Christ, if he can call down fire from heaven and consume those that have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that that was not Christ's desire, but we also know there was just a a special level of love and commitment that came from these three, and I want to be one of Christ's favorites. How many like to be? How many say, I've I've never been a favorite in life. You know, there was a teacher's pet. I wasn't even a favorite. Some of you were the only child, and you weren't your parents' favorites. (laughs) And it's been a cloud that has hovered over you for the rest of your life. But in this case, we see three of Christ's favorites. And we see a commitment that lasted even to the death. They were willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And John didn't die as a martyr as the rest of them did. But exiled there in the Isle of Patmos, boiled in oil. He suffered a lot for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was beheaded. Peter would be hung upside down. But whatever the case, I don't presume to know why these were, these were part of the inner circle. But the other, I wonder how the others felt being left behind. I imagine for some, they were actually happy that we don't have to climb that mountain. Because they had no, there was no hotels up there. There was no ski lots. There was no place to stay. And you know how quickly the weather can change on those kind of mountain tops. But up they go. To the top of the mountain. Now look what it says. There's a key phrase in verse 2. He leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. Now, as we talk about a mountaintop experience, all of us like to have those spiritually in life. Uh, those don't happen every day. Most of us can point back if you've been saved long enough. Maybe it was at a missions conference or a revival, or just you and God, whatever the case. Uh, we like those mountaintop experiences. But in order for those to happen, uh, you have to be following his leadership and mark the phrase apart by themselves. Amen. Now, for you to have a special experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be careful about experiences. But it, it may be a lonely place, and you're going to have to come apart because guess what? The world and the influence of this world and all the noise and the clatter and the chatter and everything else keeps us from having those kind of experiences. 
And think about this. How many times have you been to the house of God in the past year or the past five years, the past 10 years? The trip here, 71 or I-35 put you in the flesh before you ever reach the house of God. And if that doesn't put you in the flesh, by the time you arrive here, there's no parking spaces. Especially if you arrive at the same time as Gene or Chris Green. It's just, you're going to be parking three blocks away. And then you get here and someone else is taking your pew and, and you've already had a million reasons not to be tuned in and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and ready to receive the word of God. And here's what's going to happen. I don't believe a mountaintop experience exclusively has to take place in a church setting or a conference setting uh, around the music or the preaching of the word of God. I believe it happens when you get away from all the rest of the noise where you can actually hear from God. They came apart, and it says by themselves, there was the discipline for you to come apart, you and God, to spend time together. It takes a discipline. I'm shocked by the amount of Christians, literally 10 moments of silence with God, and you think they're going to have a nervous breakdown. If you told the average person 30 minutes on your knees, you alone with God, it, it, it couldn't happen. They, they can't. They're so used to adding the noise of, of life in the business. They've got to check their phone. They've got to check their emails. They've got to send a text. They've they got to listen to their radio. They've got to have music playing. And if you're going to have a mountaintop experience, you're going to have to come apart, separate yourself from that so you can actually hear the voice of God. Now, here's what happens. He was, look what it says, the last phrase, transfigured before them. Now, this is, this is a text that no pastor can do justice to in its explanation. So, over the course of his life, 33 years, he was viewed as a man so much so, although he lived perfectly without sin, his own brothers rejected him as the Messiah. They, they simply wouldn't accept it. We see the scribes and the Pharisees and the majority of the people, even with the miracles that were being performed, he looked too normal. How can this son of a carpenter that is a carpenter, how can someone this average in looks and stature and position how can this person so poor, how can this person so plain truly be God in the flesh? And here's what God is going to do at this very moment, just six months before the crucifixion. We're going to see a transfiguration. What was this and what was the purpose of this? Look what it says in verse 3. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. But you know... Here, you just can't capture exactly what has taken place, but it's exceeding white snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now, church, here's what we need to do. I, I want you to go with me quickly to a couple texts. Go with me to Hebrews 2, 9. And then we're going to go the opposite way in Scripture all the way back to Exodus 20, 28. Go with me to Hebrews first. Here's what God is going to do. He's going to crown Christ at this moment, at the top of this mountain, with glory. And the scripture tells us why. So as he appeared as a man, although God in the flesh, 
The disciples were struggling to understand the prophecies that were being fulfilled. They struggled to understand his death, burial, and resurrection. We know all those things. The scripture reveals those things. But they had never seen Christ in his glory. And these three are going to catch a glimpse. Now, it's going to be a quick glimpse. And we're going to find out that once again they were sleeping at this very important moment. How many things do we miss because of the mental and spiritual fog it's not the two or three that have their eyes closed in a church service that are missing what God is trying to get to them. It's the dozens that are also in a mental fog, and we see that in the life of the disciples. But they awaken just in time to see Christ being glorified, crowned with glory by his heavenly Father. Now, what was the purpose of that? Look what it said in Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for... Remember, when you read Scripture, think about every single word, including the prepositions, for the suffering of death. For, now he's going to be crowned for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. So before his death, for this moment of death, he's going to be crowned with glory and honor. Why would God do that? Now go back to Exodus, and I think we have our explanation in Exodus chapter 28. Why would God take this moment, six months, God the Father, take this moment, six months before Christ's death, to crown him with glory and honor? Exodus 28, look what it says in verse 1, speaking of Aaron the high priest, and take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Verse 2, thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for what? For glory and beauty. Now, here's what Christ is going to do. God, in his word, is going to establish in the book of Exodus the laws of the sacrifice. And he said, if Aaron is to go in and to make a sacrifice, there are special garments that he needs to be clothed in. Righteous, holy, consecrated garments in order for him to make a sacrifice. How many understand? Christ was about ready to make a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Not shedding the blood of an animal or a lamb or an innocent ram, but rather his own blood was about ready to be shed. And God said, I'm going to clothe you with garments from glory as you, the high priest, make a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Look what it says in verse 3. Thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister. God said, I don't even want him to minister, especially not in the high place, in the Holy of Holies, unless he is wearing those special consecrated garments. Verse 4, and these are the garments which they shall make a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, an embroidered coat, a mitre and a girdle, and they shall make what? Holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, his sons, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. I believe in order for Jesus Christ to die and to minister and to offer that sacrifice, he needed holy garments, and God looked down from heaven. Now, none of what he did on this earth qualified him to make this sacrifice. 
It, it wasn't his miracles. It wasn't the good he did. It was the fact that he was the son of God that qualified him. The sinless son of God. And now God is going to bring him to the top of the mountain and clothe him with the garments of holy priesthood for this moment. Verse 43. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. Now go back with me to Mark chapter 9. I believe this was a special moment that the disciples are going to catch a glimpse. And the transfiguration was about God the Father clothing God the Son in holy garments in preparation for the sacrifice that would be made. His raiment, what's it say? Verse 3, it came from heaven. It became shining. We, we see this picture in Revelation chapter 1. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can wipe them. God was in preparation of the sun for Calvary. Now, you know what every other man that's ever walked this planet has done? He has, he has done everything possible to avoid death. The exercise, you know what exercise is about? Staying younger and living longer. Diet. Uh, everything that's being done, the, the medicines and the doctor visits and all, people clinging to life, hoping if it's just adding a day, a month, a year, whatever I can do to, to live a little bit longer, have a little better quality of life. He's the only one that ever came, no fear of death. Matter of fact, he came uh, knowing I'm, his whole purpose was to die. That was it. His whole focus was death. The disciples, this is what constantly shook them up when we read about Peter being rebuked because he's talking about I came here knowing, Christ says, the date, the time, the reason, the purpose. You guys are trying to live. I am seeking to die. That is my purpose for coming. And here's what God's going to do at this point. He's going to clothe him with special garments for his moment that is just months away. Now look what happens in verse 4. There appeared unto them two men, Elias, in Moses, two witnesses. Now you'll see these men, Malachi chapter 4, other times in the scripture. They will return during the tribulation to be witnesses once again upon the earth for three and a half years. But they come. Now, there's some information here, and I believe this chapter is one of the greatest proofs of life after death. There are people all across this planet that are convinced there is no life after death. Well, God's word repeatedly says there is. But Elijah and Moses showed up and the disciples have fallen asleep after this long climb up the mountain. They're ready to lay down. I remember this past year when David and, and Nate and myself, we went to Colorado to do some hunting. We, we had the most difficult climb that I have ever climbed. I have hiked all over this world. But I've never hiked a mountain quite like that one straight up. And asked Nate and Ben when, when we were hiking up then, there were times I just, I would just lay down in the snow just trying to catch my breath. I need some oxygen in my lungs. 
That's all I need. That's what they did. I believe they made the time, the climb to the top of this mountain. They just laid down. If there were snow, they laid down in the snow and said, we just need some oxygen. And they wake up. Can you imagine waking up and there's Christ transfigured. He has been clothed from heaven. He looks like he stepped out of glory. They get to see this for a moment and they look up and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Now, here's what's amazing. They were able to identify them. Now, now this is what it tells us. There is life after death. Moses had died 1,200 years before this occasion. Elijah, 800 years before this occasion. And they were still alive. They were not karma. They were not angels. I've heard people refer to the the passing of parents or children, and now they're angels in heaven. If they're in heaven, they're not angels. They are people, and they maintain their identity. They didn't suddenly become someone else. It was still Moses and Elijah icons for the Jews. The greatest leader that this world has ever seen outside the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses. Elijah. What an incredible person. You, you know the stories, but these, these were legendary in the mind of the Jews. But they came back and were quickly identified. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you better understand, you two, 1,200, 800 years after your death, will still be alive in heaven or hell. You want to make sure that's heaven, not hell. You want to make sure you don't wake up 800 years later in the eternal flames of outer darkness that is hell. You want, to, you want to make sure this morning, you want to examine yourselves, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and just make sure that you have a time and a place when you repented of your sins. You understood the gospel. You got down on your knees. You cried out for mercy. You put your confidence in nothing outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are millions of people Better than anyone sitting here. Millions of people that kept the law but never repented of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are burning in hell today. Thousands of years later. And here's Moses. Can you imagine? Awaking out of its sleep and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. You're seeing him as you've never seen him before. Clothed from glory. Glistening white garments. And he's talking now, here's what we also know, the information from this chapter, there's life after death, and, and you will be recognized and identified by who you were on this earth. They were fellowshipping together about Christ's death. They were aware of what was to come, and I believe everyone in heaven before Christ's death knew that he was going to the earth to die and shed his blood, and I believe those that are in heaven are still in some sense, to what degree, I don't know, aware of what is taking place upon the earth. They're aware of the tribulation to come and the second coming and the millennial kingdom. I don't believe you get to heaven and suddenly become unaware of future events. I believe you're still growing in knowledge and in, uh, of, of what is not just the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself, but what is going to take place upon the earth. And here they are, and they wake up. And they see this conversation. Now, 
I've never heard a message on the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I have heard comments on Peter's comments. So they, they are there, and, and Peter, it, when, when all this is taking place, the Bible says a cloud comes over. Now, when you're on a mountain, you know this, clouds are much more, uh, a greater cause of fear than they are, you know, you're in Austin, our elevation, a cloud comes, you don't think anything about it. There are thousands and thousands of clouds that pass by our city daily or, or weekly. But when you're on a mountain, you know it can turn from gorgeous blue to a horrific storm in a matter of moments, and you want off that mountain. And here comes this incredible cloud, dark cloud, and a voice comes out of this cloud. Now, for those of you who say, I'd like to hear the voice of God. You watch the movie to know how it sounds. The big, thundering, echoing, booming voice, right? That's the way movies make it. Who knows? They heard the voice, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And what does Peter say? Now, the first thing he said, he nailed it. It is good for us to be here. Yes. All of us wish we could be right there in that moment. One of the places I'd like to be in Scripture, there are five or six specific places. This is one of them. I'd love to be there, see Christ transfigured, and uh, be joining James and Peter and, and John, in hindsight, watching them react to everything that's taking place. If they're at the top of the mountain, I guarantee there's some shivering going on, shaking before the cloud just because of the, the weather conditions. But now with the, the booming voice that comes out of the cloud, and, and Peter says, it's good for us to be here now, how many of you have ever been in a spot, a mountaintop experience, where God, you heard God's voice? Anybody? We're not Pentecostals yeah. in the sense of he, he, God has spoken to me, yeah. not by special revelation. Yeah. It wasn't in the middle of the night. Something makes me nervous about that crowd. That they're always sleeping when God speaks to them. Wake up. <laughs> Amen. Stop eating pizza and chili peppers and everything else at 1130 at night. It's bad for your health. It's bad for your dreams. It'll mess you up anyways. God ought to speak to you. Here's what's crazy. How many times a month you go to church and you can't tell me of a specific time when God spoke to you? The word of God is being preached. God ought to be speaking to you. You ought to be able to say, God's working my heart, God's working my life. You ought to get along with your kids and say, when was the last time God spoke to you? What is God speaking to you about? Are you tuned in? Are you listening to the voice of God? You, you, you never walk in aisles. Is there never a time in a church setting where God gets a hold of your attention and deals with you specifically about something in your life that needs to be changed? Where does, if God doesn't speak to you in church, where does God speak to you? When does God speak to you? Does God speak to you? Not that he's not wanting to speak, but most are not willing to listen. But he speaks, and this mountaintop experience. Now, we're we're getting to the message this morning. We just have to get up to the top of the mountain, see the circumstances. But we're talking about mountaintop experiences, and we all want to have one. I've had several from my calling to preach, my salvation, moments when God did something spectacular in my life. I thank God I can can take you to places in my life where God did a special work, and I thank God for that. 
but be careful. In the midst of this, he's so afraid. And Peter says, verse 5, Master, it's good for us to be here. And then he says, let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elias. I'm truly convinced. I don't want to be critical of Peter. I've been critical of Peter in other moments. I, I believe there's a lot to admire in Peter and some to criticize in Peter. I don't know if this is really a moment to criticize Peter. Come on, what do you talk like when you're freshly awakened out of a sleep? And then you're seeing Christ transfigured and he's speaking to Moses and Elijah. Come, come on, you tell me what's coming out of your mouth is going to be perfectly stated to be written in Scripture, right? I'm going to say, if, if I were to open my mouth over the next 30 minutes and it's recorded in Scripture, I'd be embarrassed too. What if we just took your morning conversation, recorded it in the scripture, and let everybody evaluate it and analyze it and <laughs> criticize it over the next few centuries? So maybe James and John were species. We don't know. But he starts out good. Is this good for us to be here? Yes, it is. Uh, let's, let's just go ahead and build a tabernacle. Maybe he thought at this point, okay, if finally the kingdom is going to be established. We're on top of the mountain. We might as well start here, build a few tabernacles, and, and let the kingdom roll. Who knows what he's saying? I, I don't see it. The Bible says he wist not what he said. Every day we say things wisting not. <laughs> you, here's the difference. When your kids speak and wist not, you can correct them. But when you speak and wist not, there's no one there to say, that was stupid. <laughs> and your friends aren't honest enough to look at you and say, you idiot, what was that? You didn't put any thought into that paragraph, that phrase, or that response. So take it easy on Peter. He's fearful, cloud, the whole scene, good for us to be here. Listen, to me, end of the day, not a bad thought. And I know people say, well, he was putting Christ on the same level as alive. Well, yada, 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 whatever you want to think. I think this was about as good of a comment it could have come out of a mouth on the top of a cold mountain after having awakened from a deep sleep, looking at Christ transfigured and Elijah and Moses. Peter, you didn't do so bad. <laughs> right? It was just, he was the spokesman. He had to say something. But here's what God, God did him a favor because I believe what was to come out of his mouth would have even been more stupid but God saved him by rolling a cloud over them and saying, this is my beloved son. He interrupted Peter. Thank you, Lord. How many of you right in the middle of a stupid conversation just got interrupted and you look back and say, oh, what a favor they did me. God did Peter a big favor. He interrupts the statement. Now look what it says. Suddenly... No, hold on, we, we can't miss maybe the two most important words in the whole chapter. This, my beloved son, what's the next two words, verse 7? Hear him. They hadn't heard him. Yeah. Now, this chapter is about him revealing, once again, he was going to die, and, and Peter stands up, pulls Christ aside, and rebukes him for the message. Christ rebukes Peter, says, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art in offense. He said, the very fact that you haven't embraced the cross, that makes you offense unto me. Thou savorest not the things that be of God. They're not capturing it. So 
here's what's going to happen. When he takes them to the top of this mountain, he's going to help them because the next six months are going to be brutal. Remember the first three years of his ministry, it was miracles of feeding of the 5,000, raising the dead. All these great things were happening. But now his fame is subsiding. The, the persecution is growing more, more intense. The scribes and the Pharisees want him dead. The last six months are going to change drastically in Christ's ministry. And this is part of this is the mental preparation for these three saying, okay, there's life after this life. That's been verified. And Christ is speaking of death, but there will be a resurrection. We've seen that already in Moses and Elijah. And a lot of times you can hear things, but you don't capture it until you see it. So he's given them a visual illustration, an object lesson to solidify their faith. But he says, hear him, and we don't. And it, it used to discourage me that the things you could preach and people don't, they don't hear it. I mean, you can, you can walk out of church service five minutes later, they, they obviously didn't hear it. And I don't get discouraged because they didn't hear Christ. Christ, God in the flesh, full of the Holy Spirit's power, clear in his delivery, without spasmodic dysphonia. He didn't speak like a goat. He didn't interrupt his own sentences. He preached the truth, and they missed it. Now look what it says, verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only. You know what a mountaintop experience is? It's about us seeing Jesus as he is. If, if you could just get people. You, you, know, you know what those special moments are in your life when it was you and Jesus, and you saw Jesus as he is, and you heard his voice, and... You know why we're so fearful and overwhelmed and frustrated? Because we see everything but Jesus. And this mountaintop experience was about them. They saw Jesus. He is the son of God. He was glorified. He's speaking with Moses and Elijah. You can't get any better experience on the earth than this one right here. This is the highlight. This is going to be the, the peak moment of their lives. If they write anything in the future uh, about their experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is it. We were at the top of the mountain, and Christ was transfigured. Moses and Elijah, we got to hear the conversation. God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Every verification they needed for what was being said and prophesied is summed up in this experience. Right? And oh, if we just have a few experiences in our life where we so distance ourselves from everything else, where we actually see Jesus and come our hearts and say, it would change our living. It would change our actions. It would change our soul winning. We would live with eternity in view. But here's what's incredible. All the songs and all the music and all the preparation for services and the sermons and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God and everything else to just connect us with Jesus. And normally, it doesn't happen. Normally, we're in such a deep sleep that we actually miss it. Now, look what it says in verse 9. As they came down. Here's the problem with mountaintop experiences. They're few and far between, and they're short-lived. So they got to come down. You know what I hate about missions conference? Monday. All week, the preaching, the teaching, the fellowship, and the food, and everything else, and then you wake up on Monday. And you're already off the mountain. I lied. It's not even Monday. It's Sunday night. I mean, you've taken the elevator right to the bottom. 
It, I, I love those moments, those special moments. They just don't last long enough. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they'd seen. Now, let me, let me just give you a, a short word of wisdom here that comes straight from the lips of God. It's not always best to tell everyone about your experiences with God. How many of you ever had someone tell you about their experience with God and you just, you thought, really? And it wasn't wild. It was just a special moment, you and God. And you, you thought, if anyone understands, my, my wife or my husband will understand, they'll be happy for me. And they just kept cleaning the kitchen, washing the dishes, and said, great, let's hope it produce something lasting. Let's hope you radically change because you've been a scum bucket for the past 20 years. Right? He, here's what he tells them. Can you imagine? They did. I guarantee you, these three wanted to go down to the bottom and say, guys, you're not going to believe this. We're up there, cloud comes over, crisis, we can't even explain. Clothed by God with the garments of glory and Elijah. How do you know it was Elijah? It was Elijah. I mean, no name tag. It was Elijah, beard and everything. And Moses, they know he didn't have his staff, but it was Moses, I promise you. Can you imagine what the other ones would have said? Yeah. Lack of oxygen, oxygen can do some nasty things to the brain. He said, don't tell anyone. Now, here's what, go with me to 2 Peter. He said, until I'm risen. And Peter and John both spoke at this moment. They just waited and obeyed and didn't speak of their parents until after his resurrection. Look what it says in 2 Peter 1, 16. He said, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He said, some of you are accusing us of just making this stuff up. No, we weren't following cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses. We, we saw his majesty, for he received from God the Father. Now, hold on for a minute. This means he did not have it. This is the first time in 33 years upon the earth that he was given honor and glory from God the Father directly from heaven, clothed, crowned with honor and glory for the ministerial service and sacrifice that he was going to present to God, making an offering for sin eternally. He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard it when we were with him. In the holy mouth, he said, we were there, we saw it, we heard it. But he had to wait to tell anyone about it. Have you ever had good news or something, a story you want to tell, and you just, you had to wait? And they had to. But they only had to wait six months because he was racing towards Calvary at this point. Now, aren't you glad I didn't bring Watts this morning so I have no idea what time it is when we finally got to the message. <laughs> we had to work our way through nine verses to get there. So, I've purposely over the past couple of weeks listened to some messages on the transfiguration. And here's what I heard. When you have a meeting with God this special, your life is permanently, radically altered. And then I read the rest of the chapter. And I said, not so. 
Isn't it amazing that we can sit in revival, sit in a mission conference, and, and, and literally come to the altar and pour out our spirit before God and pour out our heart and say, God, my life's going to be changed, and you, you can use me, and I'm fully surrendered, and whatever you want to do with my life. And then two days later, please don't make me pass out a track. Saturday morning, I'm not going to Saul now. Sunday morning, it is long today, Pastor. Can you hurry up and get this over with? Church, I have been to so many conferences. I have listened to some of the greatest preachers of this generation. I have read the books. I have been at the altar. And guess what? I'm glad you didn't see me Friday morning. Because there is a human nature deep inside of us. And salvation radically changes as we grow and, and I'm glad for each one of those miracle moments, and I thank God for the mountaintop, but at the end of the day, they come down, verse 10, they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. They still haven't even got what he's been trying to teach them for the past chapter. I'm going to die, three days later, and they come down from the mountain saying, now what was he saying about rising from the dead? You just saw Moses and Elijah, you freakazoids. <laughs> You've been with him for three years. And you come down and say, now what was that whole thing about rising from the dead? Who's dying and why are they coming out? What in the world? And it only, hold on for a second, that's their best moment coming down from the mountain. Because it's only going to get worse. Verse 11. So the next day, they come, they've just seen Christ transfigured, clothed by God, garments from glory. And they asked him saying, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Go on. What doesn't matter? Here, here, here's what I believe in, in Matthew 11 verifies this in the scripture here in verse 12. It, he told them, Elias, verily, cometh first and restoreth all things. And even today, the whole debate is, is it Elijah going to proceed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Is it literally Elijah, a man, a prophet with the spirit of Elijah? We know that John the Baptist, the Bible says, was that Elijah and that they responded properly to John the Baptist, he would have ushered into the kingdom, but they responded improperly, and they had him killed. But folks, when you're debating over, is this Elijah, the spirit of light, what does it matter? Why don't you just love Jesus? Why don't you just serve God? Why don't you just read your Bible? Why, why don't you have your morning devotion, just lift up your hands and thank God the Father for saving you and stop spending a half an hour debating over, is it Elijah or the spirit of Elijah? It really doesn't matter. And they should have come down flying high saying we are with God in the flesh but they come down and they say, now what is this about Elijah must precede the coming of the Messiah? Uh, we, we better get back to the Bible college and sit down with the theologians and figure this out. So they come down. Immediately, verse 14, there's a multitude that meet him and questioning him straightway all the people they beheld him they were greatly amazed they saluted him verse 17 one of the multitude answered and said master i have brought in thee my son which hath a dumb spirit now that could be so many parents <laughs> amen i'm surprised it was just one because most of us have wanted to come to christ and say i've got a child with a dumb spirit can you please heal this boy? 
And whatsoever, wheresoever he taketh them, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and findeth way. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they, they couldn't. Hold on, and look at Christ's response. He answereth him, and he saith, O faithless, gen- o faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Hold, hold on, three of these just went up the Mount of Transfiguration, and they come back, and they can't cast out a demon. And Christ looks at him and says, you just saw God clothe his son and heard his voice out of a cloud. And when you walked down out of that mountain, you had no, he didn't say little faith, he said faith less human nature. So strong. Top of the mountain, the bottom of the valley, within 36 hours. Now, folks, we're not going to do this because we're going to get to the chapter later on, but it only gets worse. (laughs) This is the same chapter where uh, Peter, James, and John, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? You just just saw Jesus is the greatest. (laughs) Or if not, uh, excluding Jesus, Moses or Elijah, and now you guys are, now that Moses didn't look like he was such a big icon in the faith. I think it's going to be like me, James, Moses. I mean, this is, I can't wrap my mind around this. You, you, go from, you go from the mountain of transfiguration to arguing over who is going to be the greatest. Okay, you're burning my brain cells. That's not what the mountain of transfiguration was about. This was about Christ being high and lifted up. Church, here's the message this morning. We need some mountaintop experiences. They just don't solve all our spiritual problems. We got to wake up the next day with the same flesh, the same battle, the same mind, the same heart, the same ears, the same hands, the same spouse, the same job, the same battles. We got to say, I want those experiences. I want them to be life changing. I want God to do something special. But I better guard myself when I come down off the mountain. Because I'm still dealing with Adam Thompson. And I want to make sure that my focus on Christ. Remember they said on the mountain they saw no man save Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice when I came down off the mountain? I said I'm going to see no man. I'm not going to be mad at Ernest today. I'm going to see no man save Jesus. And I'm not going to be disappointed with my boss. I'm not going to be frustrated with the traffic I-35. And I'm not going to be angry with Brother Sergio. Because I'm going to see no man to save and I don't need to be on the mountaintop. And I don't need to be in the missions conference. I don't need to be in the middle of revival. And I don't have to be at the altar call. I'm going to deal with my flesh today and make sure I see no man save Jesus.